Hello and welcome to the Antifauna. Uh, this is episode 240 or 241, depending on how we put things out. I, of course, am Sean KB on a solo episode today, Sans Andy, but we do have a very, very awesome and exciting guest. That is the associate professor uh, in the Department of Political Science at McGill University in Quebec and the author of Deutscher award-winning monograph, Marx's Inferno, The Political Theory of Capital from 2017. Uh, William Claire Roberts, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. Uh, your work, I think, uh, as I was thinking of reading it and thinking about it, is very thorough and very groundbreaking. It's a rereading of uh, Capital Volume 1 through the structure of classics, through the structure of Dante's Inferno. You use uh, this structural argument and this political theory argument within your reading to illuminate a lot of, I think, really important historical debates that were happening within the workers' movement at the time of Marx's writing that we today seem to think have been kind of swept aside by history, are unimportant for our understandings of uh, politics today, or even Marx's work in the past, as so much water has gone under the bridge and so much of Marx's work is obscured by the dead weight of the 20th century. So nearly a decade on with this work, uh, because you, uh, I'm rounding up, it's a seven-year-old work. Uh, your uh, Marx's Inferno has been really uh, influential, I think, uh, for critical Marxists who are trying to excavate some sort of positive politics out of the wreckage of 1991 and actually existing socialism. So that that's all to say, Will, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, great to be here. So how did this connection between uh, volume one of Marx's Capital and Dante's Inferno come to you? Uh, which is another way of saying, how do you rethink it? And why has this book bedeviled readers for so many, so many years? Yeah, um, well, I, I mean, like so many things, I, it was kind of a, just a bit of a fluke for me in the sense that I mean, I've like I'm an academic and and I wrote this book, uh, you know, it's for an academic audience. And so I'm especially gratified by what you are saying about like and I, what I've experienced, which is that um, people without um, people who aren't professional academics um, have picked up the book and gotten something out of it. Um, and that's uh, above and beyond anything that I could have hoped for. So that's really cool. Um, the the Marx Dante connection. Um, I had uh, well, I wrote my uh, when I was a graduate student. I wrote my dissertation on Marx as well. And when I was in the process of writing my dissertation, um, I had spent a lot of time reading Marx. And um, the the preface to the eighteen fifty nine uh, critique of political economy, uh, of course, um, an incredibly important text for understanding and for especially for sort of summarizing Marx. Uh, um, it's a place where Marx uh, set down a little methodological sketch, which is where, you know, so many of the phrases about uh, the relationship between the economic base and the ideological superstructure and the um, developmental course of history, so many of the things that we associate with Marxism come from the 1859 preface. And 
I'd read it 50 times, uh, studying in various ways. And one day, the final line just really hit me between the eyes, which is where um, Marx quotes Dante and says, um, at the entrance to science, as at the entrance to hell, the following demand, which must be registered. Here, you must abandon every suspicion. Here must all your cowardice die. And I just uh, I suddenly kind of went sideways. And I was like, why is Marx comparing science to hell? What's going on there? And I had no idea what to do with it. Uh, it was just one of those things that um, stuck in my head for about 15 years. <laughs> um, and then uh, finally, I it was it was reading 19th century other socialist texts uh, because I, I did you know, I had to write a book. I had, if I was going to get tenure, I had to write a book. So I, I was I thought I should write a book on Marx, but I wasn't sure exactly what it was going to be. And it was um, it was reading other 19th century socialist texts um, that suddenly I saw the connection or a connection, what I thought could be a connection between a narrative of a sort of secularization of a Christian narrative that was very broad spread um, in the socialist literature. I mean, especially in the French socialist literature, probably because of the Catholic background in France, but a sort of whole metaphorics of hell on earth, right? Of the social hell, of the world of the capitalist, the new capitalist economy, uh, the new industrial economy, the transformations that seem to be happening in working people's lives in uh, and the transformations that were not happening um, in the lives of the poor um, being compared to uh, the tortures of Tartarus, right? And I started pulling on that thread and uh, and I the longer I thought about it and the, the more I studied, especially Proudhon, the more I thought uh, that this actually helped me to see what was going on in capital in a way that I had not ever appreciated before. And uh, a lot of listeners, a lot of readers of Marx and a lot of commentators on Marx, maybe the majority of them today, see capital primarily as a work of economics. Right. But you argue that um, using this this sort of structure of Dante's Inferno's talking about this social hell and bringing the reader into it, that Marx is baking political theory into the text. That is a work of political theory. What do you mean by this? And also to why do you think the context and purpose of Marx's work has become so obscure? Right. Um, yeah. So it, um, take those two. Those are two very big questions. I'll put take them in order. Like. Um, so the I mean, I think it's not weird to say that capital is a political text. I think most any Marxist and most whatever. Now, you don't have to be a Marxist to say that capital is a political text. It was clearly written with a political aim in mind. Um, but I do think uh, it has what that political aim is. Um, people were not especially sh clear on. Um, or uh, understandably, right? This is a this is a work that's written for for the workers' movement in some important sense. It's written for the socialist movement, um, but it's obviously it's an incredibly challenging, uh, very long uh, text, um, and it is a text that proceeds by way of this critique of political economy. 
And the way in which uh, 1859 preface had been taken up, the way in which capital had been taken up, especially by Engels, as a cornerstone for a scientific socialism, I think lent the uh, lent to lots of people the idea that this was socialist economics, right? That this was a this was fundamentally it was to socialism what Adam Smith was to liberalism or that the wealth of nations was to liberalism, right? That it was a, a foundational text um, laying out both how the world of the economy worked and also um, the principles by which the economy could be governed. And I think that that was especially key for understanding scientific socialism in a particular way, that this would, that somehow like what Marx said about uh, labor value in uh, in chapter one was a key for unlocking the possibility of uh, socialist accounting, for unlocking uh, like a possibility for planning. I mean, especially when you get the stuff in volume two and volume three that, oh, you know, there's a whole there's a whole theory here that we can we can build off of as a as a means of planning a socialist economy in one way or another. I mean, not to put too much weight on planning per se, but that we can understand and and run a socialist economy um, in a in a forward looking way. So I had never been satisfied by that because I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Like you you read capital and you just you don't get any you don't get any principles out of it um, that are going to um, help you understand um, how a, an economy ought to be um, governed. There was um, a, there were attempts, of course, with the tran course. famous transformation <laughs> problem, trying to figure yeah. out value and prices. Yeah. You know what sort yeah. of regulatory measures a worker state would put in place to control the market, I suppose, or value. But you're arguing that that wasn't the point, and I'm sure I would no. agree. Yeah, it wasn't. I think it certainly, it obviously, was not the point. If you go back and look at Mar at capital in context, right, Marx. Marx published Capital, um, you know, right shortly after joining the International Workingmen's um, Association. Um, a lot of the context content of the um, book was like if you read the minutes uh, of the IWMA, um, you look at the debates that Marx was having within the IWMA, you see every you see all of Capital um, um, and so it occurred to me that like really what this should be understood as as a work that is trying to um, intervene into the workers movement of the late 1860s um, and to try to especially to counter other forms of socialism um, that Marx at the time thought were um, especially regnant and especially pernicious. Um, and the big one, of course, is Proudhonism, uh, because the the French sections of the IWMA were were quite prominent. Uh, the IWMA started out as a British French uh, co venture, basically, um, and but then second, because uh, Proudhon had been around a while, and and Proudhon himself both was incredibly influential, but was also influenced by figures that had broad purchase uh, within the workers' movement from. Uh, especially the Saint Simonians, but uh, but also Proudhon, he had a lot of prestige too because he's a worker intellectual as well. Exactly, 
exactly. And and I think that's the that's the third element here, not just Proudhon, not just the people that Proudhon was influenced by, but also there is a sort of um, a um, spontaneous theory that emerges in the workers movement at, that centers on um, getting a, a fair value for your uh, labor um, that centers on a valorization of productivity um, and attempting to separate out productive labor from unproductive labor and to make that um, a basis of worker identity um, and to see um, to to um, encounter um, interactions in the market, in the labor market and in the um, purchasing market where you're where you're trying to spend your wages as, you know, fundamentally just encountering people who have more economic power than you seem to. Uh, and they're trying to gouge you. Um, and so Broad therefore, like theft. thinking that, yes, exactly. Thinking that the problem is fundamentally that there's that there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of fraud going on um, and that the real productive workers are getting uh, built by all of these fraudsters um, and cheats um, and that the bosses are sitting on, you know, valuable assets um, and using those to extort um, a living out of the in a parasitical way out of uh, out of the real productive power, which is uh, the workers themselves. Now, I think that's a very spontaneous, spontaneous workers movement ideology um, that I think Marx wanted to actually <laughs> combat pretty head on. And so one of the ways that Marx is critiqued later on down the line, especially in the 20th century, uh, is for not writing recipes of the cookshop uh, for the cookshop of the future uh, and instead leaving things up to some sort of fatalism or um, some base optimism that the workers are going to figure it out themselves. Whereas you argue, I think very convincingly, that Marx's attempt to be anti-humanistic, right, as Althusser would say, was an attempt to depersonalize uh, the social relations of capitalism, to not see them as the direct and personal domination or fraud or theft of particular bad actors within society, but instead as being something that's structural and exists above the attempts of not just workers, but also, of course, capitalists, too, to do other things. Yeah, exactly. I think the thing that stands out in Marx's understanding of the capitalist mode of production in capital in comparison to all of the texts that were going about in the workers' movement um, at the same time and that Marx's book um, was you know, competing with, as it were, for prestige within the workers' movement is precisely that impersonal aspect of it, that Marx understands capital, the capitalist mode of production as a, a social system that is not um, controlled from anywhere um, and that is not um, um, is is not operated according to um, a particular set of not only not operated according to a particular set of plans or a particular set of uh, conspiracies or something like that, but also that's not expressive of personal faults, vices in the the personnel who are most um, who seem to have all of the uh, most prominent positions within the system. 
which of course leads to one of the dominant themes of your book, um, which is not Marx's fatalism um, or his uh, structuralism, but it's instead the subtext that runs through and often not addressed by Marx himself because it was, in a sense, the context of the 19th century's workers' movement, which is uh, republicanism and specifically yeah. a radical labor republicanism that, as we'll talk about later on this episode, you call a sort of uh, radical like a radical communist republican owenite ideology but that it's one that has to be excavated right so talk a little bit about uh this context of marx's work uh, what is republicanism i mean are you saying that marx wanted us to vote for democrats and republicans i mean what is what does it mean right. because we live in a republic i mean canada sure well you have a monarch but you know at least yeah, the united we, states we're, we're we're a little shy <laughs> yeah we're, we're we're meant to be uh the land of liberty and justice and freedom so what what is this republican strain and why is it so important to your work yeah um so uh republicanism was in very in a broad sense like it was a, a like a political language of the 18th and 19th century um and it had many different strains um there's there's going to be a book coming out very soon uh by uh, a young political theorist uh, bruno leopold um um, that's going to be looking like more broadly at the currents of uh, of radical republicanism and all of the currents of republicanism in the 19th century um, that I think is going to be wonderful. I'll I'll plug it here and now I'm very happy to do that. So republicanism, I mean, I think broadly we would say there are two things uh, that historically were associated with republicanism. One was pure anti-monarchism. That is right. Uh, that's the the relevant contrast. You have a monarchy or you have a republic, right? And that's the sense in which the French Revolution was a republican revolution. Um, the and that's why you know you have the the um, first republic, the second republic of France, etc. But there's another there's another sense in which um, a republic or republican political thought was a longer tradition that wasn't so much anti-monarchism as it was um, an advocacy of making political affairs uh, res publica, that is, uh, um, public affairs. Um, that is, this is basically the, the strand of political thought that focused on turning the state into something that was governed by the citizens themselves. Um, and I've been really influenced by a sort of neo-Republican revival that there are, there are a number of political theorists that have been uh, have thought there was something really promising um, in republicanism, that republicanism is a contrast to both uh, lib dominant liberal modes of political theory and also to uh, Marxism. Um, and so Philip Pettit is the biggest name here. And a lot of your work. Uh, Richard Hunt, is he yep. doing this from a Marxist? I bought that book, by the way, on the strength oh, of yeah, the yeah. book. I bought the political theory book. Yeah, that's a great book, especially volume one is excellent. Um, volume and, one, they were meant to say, I bought one and two. They were meant to yeah. send me that. But the bookstore accidentally sent me a biography of Karl Kautsky. And I'm looking at it. It came in the mail. I'm like, do I send this back or just read it and order volume one again? So I, I kept the Kautsky book. That's that's yeah, just yeah. A keep book. the Kautsky book. But yeah, definitely <laughs> get a hold of volume one. <laughs> Will do. Um, but uh, the uh, 
the thing that the point that Pettit makes that I think is is worth holding on to and that's valuable is that um, Pettit thinks there's sort of a, a theory of freedom in Republic in the Republican tradition that's a little different from um, ordinary theories of or theories of freedom that we're more familiar with. Um, and that is that um, he thinks that for Republicans, uh, people are politically free to the extent that they are free from domination, which means um, to the extent that they're free from um, power um, that uh, they can't control the exercise of, right? Um, so uh, to be uh, dominated is to be subject to someone else's power, uh, power that they can exercise, but that, uh, that you can't control the exercise of, right? The classic instance is is a slave, right? Someone who's enslaved is uh, subject to the power of the slave owner and of everyone of the slave owning class, usually, uh, including overseers and so forth. Um, and they don't have any rights. They don't have any uh, um, way of reliably controlling how the power is exercised over them. Um, so that's the classic thing. Obviously, that resonates with 19th century socialist uh, discussions of wage slavery. Of course, um, yes, in the United uh, States, uh, especially. Yep, exactly, exactly. Um, there is, uh, you know, the um, um, there is a connection to the Republican Party uh, in the in the original soil uh, in the origins of the men. Republican Party, yeah. right? Which was uh, animated by an ideal of free labor. Um, both, which was supposed to be opposed both to slave labor and also to uh, lifelong wage labor, right? That lifelong wage labor was itself seen as a, a form of attenuated slavery. Uh, you couldn't be free um, if you didn't um, sort of graduate to uh, independence. Um, this, if this you weren't was a able yeah, this was a reflection in the United States, not just of uh, the slave system, of course, and the slave power, but also the breakdown of the old artisan craft and guild system, yep. the um, improving masters, you know, kicking the journeymen and apprentices out of the guild and taking all the means of production for himself and then rehiring those as way that this was seen as part of uh, in the American vernacular and political understanding, a deep unfreedom because the Republican freedom in the United States was meant to be independence. The virtue yep. was the independence from not just yep. the monarch and not just the state, but of course also to the despotism of a permanent employer. Exactly, exactly. And and in the US, that um, sort of uh, that ideal of independence um, could like, it had a long life precisely because of the colonial frontier, right? right. Um, and because of the ongoing process of um, expansion into that frontier and dispossession of um, the indigenous peoples of the West, um, you could keep that 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 notion of of the independent um, um, the person who has all of the means of life uh, who can go off and start anew somewhere else had a long life in the US and particularly pernicious life uh oh, it might for be sure. said yeah um but it had that had a that had a life in the in uh, the socialist workers movement as well right um it helped to animate a lot of the beliefs uh, that you know behind like going off and setting up workers colonies precisely on the frontier right uh, going to uh, Texas or going to uh, forming Indiana. the Oneida colony or exactly uh, yeah. exactly um, and and just getting away from 
getting away from the boss, getting away from the aristocrats, getting away from the kings um, and setting up something anew. Um, and maybe uh, maybe this is a topic uh, for like the, the bonus section later on. But I feel as though even though the frontier has been closed for 130 years or so in the United States, thank goodness that dispossession is over. Um, it, it feels as though like small business ownership and petty bourgeois shopkeeping uh, replaces that. And it seems as though the U.S. state as like the guarantor of capital as such tends to want to continually reproduce this illusion and reality of freedom that comes from small proprietorship returning back to the sort of yeoman Jefferson conception of American freedom, which of course, as we know from your book, as we know from capital, as we know from history, is always going to be marginal and under threat by big capital and most workers will remain workers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, that's like that vision of um, that vision of independence, um, of freedom on the basis of one's own labor, um, I think is precisely the thing that uh, Marx wants to fundamentally excise from the from the workers movement. The worker um, separatism, right, as you call it. Yep. Worker separatism. Exactly. Yep. So. Um, I'm sorry, were you finished? No, no, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, you're not finished, but I should go ahead. This is no. this been good. <laughs> I'm just I'm just I'm just very self-conscious about uh, droning on and on. Oh, and, uh, well, your your droning is great, so don't feel self-conscious at all. But I wanna um pick up on another thread here. I've got a whole list of questions from your book. My marginal notes are pretty extensive on this. Um I think it would come as a surprise to a lot of listeners and a lot of Marxists, uh, certainly a lot of Marxist-Leninists or Maoists or whatever, to learn that uh, Marx wasn't, in your reading, particularly interested in things like economic equality or eliminating scarcity or building self-determined, solidaristic communities of workers. You argue instead, and this is tied to the republicanism, that his interest was in freedom. Uh, what's your basis for this argument um, and what are its implications? We've been talking about some of them, but continue. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the basis uh, is it's partly textual um, in the sense that um, um, whenever Marx starts talking, um, uh, as in the section four of uh, chapter one of uh, Capital, when he starts talking about um, you know, he gives those little those little glimpses of a, of a different mode of production. He always talks about those um, in terms of um, free associated labor. Um, and I think free and associated for uh, Marx, uh, those two things go hand in hand um, that um, socialism was. Uh, for him or communism was for him um, the project of building um, um, a free uh, an economy in which people would have a form of free association that um, replicated and um, deepened the type of free association that Republicans, political Republicans, had always associated with the um, the free republic, right? The the that I mean, the problem with that that vision of the free republic was always premised on 
someone else taking care of the dirty work, right? It was always premised on a subjugated class. Um, it was always premised on um, slave labor or on some sort of subject labor, uh, you know, laboring subject class. Um, and even in the, you know, sort of uh, vision of the free yeomanry, um, it, you know, it was still fundamentally an exclusive um, vision of, of, of freedom. Um, only property-owning males could vote, right? Yeah, exactly. Only property-owning males could vote, um, and and uh, yeah, the, there was no <laughs> there was no need for anything uh, beyond that. There couldn't be anything beyond that. So because the vir- their virtue was their independence, their, their not just economic. Their exactly. Their economic uh, independence produces their ability for political independence. Exactly. Um, and Marx thought that the, the capitalist mode of production had fundamentally changed the ground um, on which that argument um, rested, which is that um, it's no longer possible for people to get the thing that they thought they were getting from economic independence. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, that um, um, no one can make their own lives um, anymore. Certainly, we can't do it at scale. Um, like if this was true already uh, in the 19th century, um, you know, you see massive agglomerations of uh, population in factory centers um, in uh, and around Manchester, in and around London. You see the clearing out of the countryside. Um, you you see the you know vast improvements in labor productivity. And those vast improvements in labor productivity are tied specifically to the new forms of associated labor, new forms of cooperative labor. Um, it's and what that means is also the it's it's the disempowering of individuals to make the means of their own life, um, and it is also a, a rendering of all of us uh, dependent upon masses of other people who will never meet in our lives. Right. And this uh, and this massive uh, socialization of production exactly. is a thing that uh, many in the social in the workers movement of that time were calling to pull back from is to to re-implement petty property, petty commodity production, as though you could return to a past period and still retain the productivity increases and, and whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so like that, the I think fundamentally. um I, d- I don't think that Marx or capital has the answers to this, but I think it does an, a wonderful job of articulating the problem, <laughs> which is that um, um, we have to find a way of um, um, living freely um, in a way that is also compatible with, you know, Eight million people living on this earth. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Uh, as our as our friend friend of the show Jasper Burns has talked about um, in terms of visions of communism, which again we'll talk about later on. Um, capital almost provides like a negative imprint. And in your analysis and rethinking and rereading of this text, just as Dante brings uh, the reader through the circles of hell, Marx too brings us through uh, three levels of domination in our journey through into capital into social hell 
basically, right? So talk a little bit about the specifics of this. There's the interpersonal domination, the despotism of the workplace, and then there's the state, right? Yeah, yeah. Did I get those three correctly? Well, yeah. I well, I'll I'll tweak it a little bit. Please um, do. Yeah. So yeah, the the borrowing of Dante, like I said at the early on in our conversation, like uh, it started to click for me when I thought that it revealed actually what the structure of capitalism book was, um, and um, that structure I think has actually four parts. Uh, two of them are are subparts of of one larger part so um it's both three and four are correct um so um you know at the first level um capitalism is a is a society of the market um and at the level of the market um what we confront is a type of impersonal domination um in which you know, we are dependent upon uh, market demand um, in order to sell our goods or ourselves, our our labor power. Um, and no one is so positioned to be able to um, uh, produce their own demand. Um, and so that's that's what fundamentally ties everything together. Um, and that's what gives rise to. Um, uh, Marx thinks, you know, a lot of these, uh, um, you know, very primitive phenomena of um, of feeling disempowered by um, the encroachment of of the market, suddenly being dependent upon the market. Um, so for these artisans, for example, that it feels like no longer are is their position in society secure at all. And this is a very the first three chapters, for example, are very rich and very dense. And I think uh, maybe not in your reading, but generally seem to be pretty obscure. So one could spend one's entire life reading value form theory and trying to understand this impersonal yeah. domination of the market, which of course is essential to the book. But then you bring in the other two aspects in the other sections. Yeah, exactly. Because if if everyone in capitalist society or every producer in capitalist society is dependent upon the market, um, we're all dependent upon it in very different ways, right? Um, and uh, a, a wage worker is dependent upon the market market in a very different way than uh, their capitalist employer is, right? Um, and so that's the fundamental link, right? Is that um, um, as Marx says in the Grundrisse, right? There, there, these new impersonal forms of domination give rise to new personalizations of domination as well. Right, because they they give rise to a workplace in which um, workers are uh, dependent for their access um, to the means of life um, on the you know continuing profitability of the um, of the firm uh, that is employing them and on their boss's ability to. Uh, predict uh, the movements of the market and to get in, and this is the most important thing, to wring enough labor out of them uh, to to make the whole operation profitable. Um, and then there are others then too who read this, uh, focus on this aspect, and they become workerists, they become syndicalists, they become uh, maybe libertarian Marxists, whatever the case may be, because this is the essential part for them. But it's all tied together, right? So there's yeah. also the the third the third uh, level of hell too, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And so then, um, like the 
uh, the third level uh, is the level of fraud, um, right? This is this is where, because Marx Marx obviously thinks that um, capitalism seems to promise a great deal um, to uh, workers, um, to everyone, right? Uh, the the promise of Adam Smith, right? The 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 idea is that a growing economy, like um, a capitalist economy is going to be one in which um, the wages of labor are high. Um, that's the the that's the promise is that we will all be free and well paid, and our uh, you know our condition our living conditions will improve uh, year over year and and we'll be fine. Um, and Marx thinks that 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 is fundamentally. It turns out that that's that's a fraud. <laughs> right. That in fact. Um, that rests on um, that promise rests on um, the application of machinery to the um, labor process, um, and it rests on the wage contract. Um, and those things um, will always end up producing not um, general abundance for the wage workers, but rather a relative surplus population, right? That's that's what capital accumulation really gives us is a population of people who are dependent upon the wage for life, but who are not necessary for production, who uh, are uh, from the standpoint of the capitalist are redundant. Um, and so I, that's that's the fundamental fraud. Um, and that's that's the the dynamic that underlies the the crisis proneness of uh, capitalism and the unsustainability of capitalism, uh, I think, from Marx's standpoint. And the state can't fix it. And that's the fourth level. Yes, right. Yes. Uh, the fourth level is is this, you know, the level of primitive accumulation. Um, and and the fundamental lesson there is um, that the the state is as dependent upon capital, the capital accumulation as is the firm. That in fact, uh, the and the state is willing to do um, the the violence necessary um, to s try to secure the conditions for ongoing capital accumulation, because the operations of the modern state depend on on a growing economy. So there you have it. Then, so the state then isn't uh, the guarantor. The bourgeois state, let's say, is not the guarantor of uh, workers' liberty and freedom, that even um, historical developments of the 19th and 20th century, like welfareism and labor rights and things of this sort, uh, were tendencies that Marx sees at the time and is already critiquing in the 1860s, uh, the state as this, as this guarantor or as this neutral arbiter, you know, which might be able to balance the different uh, class forces and interests. Um, Marx and Engels, as you argue, have different conceptions of the state. And this is going to bring us to republicanism as it pertains to uh, Marx's understanding of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which people are going to see as perhaps contradictory, right? But Engels sees the state as semi-neutral and parasitic upon society, whereas Marx himself understands the state as a mechanism and instrument of uh uh, class domination, right? Mm -hmm. What's uh, what's in this distinction? What are um, wh what do you draw from that? I mean, I I'm not the first person to say this at all, but um, you know, I think one of the distinctive things that um, 
one of the distinctive things that Engels brings in or emphasizes in the Marxist tradition, um, one, a central element of his importance in the Marxist tradition and something that gets picked up um, and emphasized anew by both Lenin and Kautsky in different ways, right, um, is uh, a um, a real a faith in administration, uh, in rational administration as a um, counterpoint to um, the domination of the market, um, right? So um, Engels is really impressed. Um, I mean, he's always remains a little bit of a Sansimonian. He's really impressed by the growth of these, uh, you know, large firms. Um, we could have gone building the Suez Canal along with exactly, the Sansimonians. Exactly. Uh, um, and uh, that their capacity for vertical integration and and decision making and uh, uh, sort of rational division of labor and administration. Um, and Socialism so, is the post office, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Um, and so obviously that's a like that's a, a a very deep strand in socialism. And for many people, uh, many people would think that that is a distinctive strand in Marxism, that that's part of what Marxism brings to socialism. Um, so I. And I actually I I think that careful reading of the last section of uh, Capital ought to disabuse us of that notion, um, because um, I think, you know, as that um, the administrative powers of um, the firm, the administrative powers of the state bureaucracy um, are um, you know, so long as they are themselves dependent upon um, uh, the growing, uh, uh, a growing mass of wealth produced by and transformed into capital, um, then they are also always going to be um, the armed uh vanguard of capitalist expansion <laughs> and then the 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 social democratic as we understand it now counter argument to that of too is that the capitalist state relies ultimately too on the legitimacy given to it by the working class as a restive working class and a working class that refuse after a certain historical period refuses to be thrown into the trash heap and so therefore under you can uh, you can using that understand the capitalist state as something that you can impose regulations upon that you can democratically vote say a social security system uh but this isn't marx's vision of republicanism no well i mean it just because uh, um, the the society of capital is fundamentally global, um, and and there is no way of imposing democratically imposing uh, discipline or terms on uh, the capitalist state from below uh, if uh, capital is global. Um, yeah, yeah, and this uh, is a realization that Marx has, and he puts in the book. Yeah, yeah, and that that I think I think that's 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 the lesson of of primitive accumulation. 
that the state will be the agent of primitive accumulation uh, so long as it is dependent on capital. All right, as we get towards the end of the main section and we work our way towards uh, the bonus, let's talk about then um, radical Republican communist Owenism. Uh, uh, let's talk about uh, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, let's talk about Marx's, as you understand it, as as we read through the book, what is his uh, prescription? If he's not writing recipes for the cookbook of the future, what is implicit in his analysis that leads us to this Republican Owenite position? Right. Um, yeah, I. This is the point where Marx often gets is not very satisfying, right? <laughs> um, and I, I don't think that I have some sort of uh, satisfying um, like reconstruction of Marx that somehow is going to ring uh, um, something clear and super helpful uh, from a text that, uh, you know, has so far resisted that. Um, what I will say um, is um, two things that I think are helpful. Um, one is that, um, so this speaks to the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, I think Marx is fundamentally operating with uh, a conception of democracy that is pre-modern. Uh, in a good way, in an important way. Um, I, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the left is beholden actually to a sort of Rousseauian uh, notion of democracy. Um, a demo you know, democracy as popular sovereignty, democracy as um, the rule of all. Um, and Marx, I think, is fundamentally uh, not that's not his conception of democracy. Um, his conception of democracy is much more like the Greek uh, conception of democracy, where uh, democracy is the the power of the many. Um, and that is, um, it's the power of those who only are able to act collectively. Uh, those who don't stand out as individual uh, important actors, um, but who uh, whose power consists precisely in their mass quality. Um, so like the dictatorship of the proletariat is for Marx, that is democracy, um, precisely because what it is, is the um, predominance of the mass of the people. So that's important because I think we need to be clear that in a class-riven society, uh, there can't be anything like um, the rule of all, um, right? There can't be anything like um, everyone um, taking part as equals um, in we the have, political we have the people sphere. here in the United States, right? Yeah. And we see what that turns into. Exactly, exactly. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, the second thing I would say, and this is this is uh, what the sort of recovering the Republican heritage uh, means for me, especially, <laughs> I think there has been a, a strong anti-institutional um, strand in the history of socialism um, and in the history of Marxism, that attention to institutional design 
like belief that institutions could be a place where we would experience uh, freedom or institutions would be a permanent part of human political life uh, or human free life, human association. I think that's hard for a lot of socialists and uh, Marxists to accept. But I actually think that's one of the key lessons of the Republican heritage is precisely that, like, I can't be free of uncontrolled powers unless I have myself institutional powers that would allow me to control those powers, <laughs> right? right. I mean, it's a very simple point in the sense that, like, um, elections are supposed to hold elected office holders responsible to those who elected them, right? The right. idea is that you would um, vote for somebody and if they um, abuse their power, that you would be able to vote them out, right? Um, and Marx says a lot of things, actually, that are indicative, even if generally I agree in a in a not helpful, fleshed out way, like you'll not you cannot find a constitutional theory in Marx. But nonetheless, you do find, I think, a rich appreciation, actually, for institutional dynamics. Uh, and I think that uh, um, the study of institutional dynamics is something that socialists uh, have not been especially good at. Um, and I think it's something that we need to get better at. So we can understand um, the uh, the communist moment or uh, the drive for socialism as being a drive for not just expropriating the expropriators, but dominating the dominators. First of all, yes, dominating the dominators, but then also establishing institutions whereby we would not have to dominate the dominators because there wouldn't be anyone like any power that anyone had over us. We would be able to control how it was exercised. Good stuff. Good way to end the main episode. I think uh, we're going to take a short break. And for patrons of the show, we'll see you on the other side. If you're not a patron and you want to hear the rest of this amazing discussion, become a patron at patreon.com slash the Antifada. It's cheap and it's good. And we've got a huge backlog of awesome content like this. So thank you to Will and we'll see all of you on the other side. 